finding your place in your Bible in the book of Job. The book of Job is one of the most remarkable, well-written, most unique books of the Bible. And it, in your Bible, it falls under the category of wisdom literature. There's a lot that happens in the book of Job. And you have to be careful with the book of Job if you simply just pull a passage out of context. Um, you got to be very careful with that. Um, Pastor Nall sent us a, a quote this morning, and it said, A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. <laughs> you, use, you use the scripture the wrong way, you might get in trouble. In the book of Job, there are several different people who are speaking, and if you take some of the scripture there and you just leave it without context, you could really misquote the scripture. And you could make, a, make a, a problem for yourself with that. So we have to be careful with the book of Job. And the book of Job is a very difficult book. I'll be the first to admit to you that every time the Lord leads me to preach from the book of Job, I think, man, that's going to be exciting, but that's going to be tough. And uh, it, is a, it is a difficult book to understand, and it's also a difficult book to apply to our lives. I mean, have you ever seen someone suffering Ever witness that? Witness them going through something that seems almost insurmountable and you wonder why it happened? Well, that question why is a question that theologians and philosophers have considered for generations. And we've thought about this question this way. Why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, that, that's the, the problem of suffering. Why do bad things happen to good people? And it would seem that Job is sort of a case study for that question. Job is lifted up, not just by the Scripture, but by God Himself as being a, a just man, a good man, a good person. And indeed, Job is a good man. The Scripture never says he's a perfect man, but it does say he's a good man. But then all of this horrible suffering comes upon Job. And so the question is, why do bad things happen to good people? And so uh, theologians have phrased the, the question this way. They've called it the problem of evil or the problem of suffering in our world. And it kind of goes like this. If God is a good God and God is all-powerful, then why do bad things happen? Why does evil happen? We know that there's evil in the world. All you have to do is look around you and you realize there's evil there's sin in the world, there's difficulty in the world, there's suffering in the world, natural disaster, earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis, diseases, genocide, there's moral evil, and there's natural evil. There's evil that is done by choice and action, directly or indirectly. There's sins of commission and sins of omission, things that should take place that don't take place. And so we see all this suffering around us and we go, why does this happen? That big three-letter word, why? Well, spoiler alert, the book of Job never really tells us why. But the book of Job does tell us what we need to know. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to study together and we're going to hear what God has to say 
about the problem of suffering. Okay? So would you stand with me? We're going to read uh, the very beginning of the book, Job chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 12 together, okay? Hold on, it's 12 verses, but we'll make it through it quickly, okay? There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. Sounds like a fairy tale, doesn't it? But let me assure you, Job was a real man. He's mentioned in the New Testament as an example of faith. So he was a real man who lived on this earth. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. Let's back up. How many, how many oxen did he have? A thousand. Oh, that's a trick question, isn't it? 500 yoke means a yoke is two, right? So he, he had a thousand. Okay. All right. So let's keep going. And, and very many servants. So this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to hold... Uh, used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Let us pray together. Our Father, we are humbled by your word this morning. And we're thankful, Lord, for the knowledge of you. That even in our suffering and even in our pain, Lord, you are there. Lord, I pray that we would always bless your name as Job blessed your name. In the good and in the bad of life. Father, I pray for the one who is suffering today, that, Lord, that they would draw strength from the words of your book today. Lord, that they would look to the example of Job, the one who endured under such trial. And, Lord, the one who was considered blessed and who received the compassion and the grace of Almighty God. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to comfort the one who is suffering as we ourselves have endured under trial, that we would be able to be compassionate toward those who are suffering. And Father, I pray that though we may never know why, we can always know 
that you are good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So the scripture pulls the curtain back just a little bit, and you get to see a glimpse of what happened in heaven. It's interesting that the writer of the book of Job, possibly Job himself, we don't know who wrote the book of Job, the oldest book of the Bible, by the way. Of course, the events of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, it probably precedes the, the writing, the, the, the uh, what am I trying to say, the chronology of Job. But Job is the oldest book of the, of the Old Testament. So it's interesting. But it, it's, it's interesting that this person is able to look into heaven and then tell us what's happening in heaven. That there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. So this, this event, this scene that's happening is something where, where God is just pulling that curtain back for us so we can just get a glimpse of what it's like. And the first thing that we see when God pulls back the curtain a little bit is we look into a man's life and we find out that this man is a man of God. So if we look at Job's character again in verses 1 through 5, the Bible says that he, he has integrity. Job is a man of integrity. His integrity was intact. He never treated anyone unfairly, and no one could bring a cause against him. And then verses 2 and then verses 4 and 5, we see Job's family, seven sons and three daughters. And in a time where having a big family and having lots of sheep and goats and all of those things, that was a measure of a man's worth, a measure of a man's greatness. Job was rich. He had prospered. Verse 5, he, he talks about his children and he says, my children. I love that. Job was a family man. And if you think about it, the fact that these these were grown men and women, and Job still called them his children. How many of you have grown children and you still feel the same way about them? Amen. <laughs> Got grown children and you say, my kids, my daughter, my son. And Job felt that same way. He was a family man. He had children who were well provided for. They had everything they needed. He, he had a, it set a good example for them on how to live, and he didn't neglect his family. And then you see Job's reputation in verse 3. Look at what it says here. That he was the greatest of all the people of the east. That meant was Job was well known. People knew about Job. They had heard about this man. Because he was a man who walked in his, in his integrity. As well as he was a great family man. And then he had a great reputation. In fact, later on in the book of Job, uh, Job is kind of going up against his friends who've, who've kind of accused him, and Job is, is defending himself, and he's saying, no, from the, the time I was young, I had helped the poor. Look at the next slide there for me. It says, Caleb, you got that? If I have withheld anything that the poor desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or have eaten my morsel alone, and the fatherless has not eaten of it from my youth, the fatherless grew up with me as if with a father. And from my mother's womb, I guided the widow. And he goes on to say, If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or the needy without covering, if his body has not blessed me, if, and if 
if he was not warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless, because I saw my help at the gate, then let my shoulder blade fall from my shoulder. I'm like, Joe, golly, let my shoulder blade fall off my shoulder, he said. That sounds painful, doesn't it? I mean, Job is already suffering unimaginable pain, and he can't think of anything else. He said, well, just let my arm fall off. I mean, my, he's already lost so much. And, and he says, then let my arm be broken from its socket. Look, if, if I haven't taken care of the widow, the poor, the fatherless, the, the orphan, if they haven't eaten my bread. So although Job was blessed immeasurably, we might say he's the greatest in all of the people of the East, the Bible says, well, he, he not only was blessed, he became a blessing to others. And this was his reputation. No one could speak against it. And then you also see in verse 5, Job's sacrifice... Job would send early and consecrate his family. Now, the Bible says that they would get together and they would feast together, each one on his day. And what most scholars say is that we're talking about birthday celebrations. How many of you had a birthday celebration late? Is it a good time? Yep. I remember Miss Virginia Lippum's birthday celebration. We had it here just recently. It was a wonderful time. And, and Job... Job's children, they would get together, they come together, which, which for me, that represents the fact that they loved each other and they still wanted to be friends. How many of you uh, are, are really that close with your family? Anybody still got family members that are, grew up with these people in your same household until you became an adult and you still want to be friends? <laughs> That's unique, isn't it? Yeah, well... They, they still wanted to be friends. They gathered together. But Job said, hey, maybe when they got together, maybe whenever they drank too much or they ate too much or they just let their mouth slip, they said something ugly. And maybe they cursed God. Or maybe they didn't even say it out loud, but maybe they just thought something and it was in their heart. So Job would call them together after the feasts were, were over. And the Bible says he would consecrate them. That's a physical act of washing them and preparing them to be ready to sacrifice. We see it outlined in the, the books of Leviticus and Exodus how a consecration could take place. But Job knew how to do this even before those books were written. He washed them, made them ready and presentable to the Lord, and he made sacrifices for his family, for his children. And so Job was worshiping the Lord, and he understood that sin required a sacrifice. And so you see Job's character. And the Bible says it, it, he, was, he was unblemished in his character. Doesn't mean he was perfect. Never says he was a perfect man. But it does say that he was blameless. I mean, nobody could bring any charge against him. Nobody could say, this is what he did wrong to me. Because Job, everything Job ever did was all out in the open. And he had confessed it all. He wasn't holding any hidden sins in his heart before God. So then the question is, why the rest of the book? Why does it have to happen? Some of us, we, we think about human suffering this way. We kind of like the lines on a basketball. We, we're tempted to imagine that this is the way suffering is. I did something wrong over here, 
And so it comes all the way around back to me. Right? I did it wrong, and so it goes around and it comes back to me. Whatever, whatever I do is going to come back on me. So if I'm suffering, it's because I did something wrong and I deserved it. Or if someone else out there is suffering, well, they deserve it. You reap what you sow, right? But folks, that's a, that's a false view of the world. That's not Christianity. You know what that is? That's Hinduism. And it's called karma. Bounces back at you, right? I want to challenge your thinking if you've been thinking this way. That suffering is because I did something wrong. That's not Christianity and that's not what the Bible teaches. You know how the Bible teaches it? Rather than lines that we try to connect, the Bible teaches that human suffering is a lot like this. universal everyone suffers what we're going to learn from the book of Job and what we're going to see today for the rest of what we understand from the scripture today is human suffering is a universal part of our fallen condition that's the biblical truth no one gets out of it Everyone suffers. You say, well, I can, I can see that. I understand that. But why? And we still want to go back to this question, why? Why do people suffer so much? And that could be the question that we ask about Job. Why does Job suffer such unimaginable pain? And then we can begin to really unpack that question and really think about that. And we say, well, how much is too much? Because we could say, well, what if, what if God decided that the world was going to be equal suffering and we were all just going to receive a pinprick? And that was all that we would receive. Would there not be folks in the room, especially the diabetic folks in the room, say, why do I have to have a pinprick? Why can't I just have a scratch? I'd rather have a scratch. And you say, well, why do I have to have a scratch? Why, why couldn't I just have a little poke? Why do I have to have a poke? Why couldn't I just have a little tickle? Anybody feel bad whenever somebody tickles your foot? That's worse than a pinprick to me. I'd rather not be tickled. But you see where we're going with this? No amount of suffering would ever be acceptable. To a human being. So let me say, couldn't we suffer much, much more than we do? Can somebody say amen to that? And couldn't we say, God's been better to me than I deserve? Amen? It could be so 
much worse. So here's what we have to do. This is the conclusion that we have to draw. Is that God allows universal suffering for his purposes. And God has a good purpose in what he does. We're going to see that toward the end of the book. But we see Job's character. And then secondly, we see the Lord's commendation. And it's almost like we'd say, Lord... Why would you mention Job before the devil? They come, the, the sons of God, and we, we say these are angels, but they're not ju- they're an- angelic being, but beings, but they're not just the good angels, but they're the, the bad angels, and we call them uh, demons sometimes. And Satan comes among them, and the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? What that tells me is that Satan is answerable to God. Don't ever get this wrong in your mind. Don't ever think that Satan can do whatever he wants to do. If somebody says, well, what is the opposite of, of light? And you say, darkness, right? What's the opposite of good? And you say, evil. What's the opposite of God? And you say, don't ever say that. Satan, does not, Satan is not the opposite of God. He's not anywhere comparable to God. God has no opposite. He has no equal. Satan is limited. He was created by God and he fell from his position. If we were to say, well, Satan, if we put it the other way and we say, well, Satan, who is Satan's opposite? We might say someone like Michael, the archangel. But certainly not God. And so we see Satan is limited and he's answerable. He is accountable to God. And one day he will stand before Almighty God. He will be condemned and he will be thrown into the lake of fire and he will be destroyed. But Satan comes and, he, and, and the Lord says, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. There's two things that I think about here whenever I come to that that text. And I, I think, you know, number one, the Lord points out Job. And I ask myself why, and I think about this. Well, the Lord is proud of Job. The Lord wants to present Job as a case study. The Lord wants to say, look at my servant Job. He loves me. And the Lord loves Job. And the Lord can't help but talk about him. Haven't you got children that you're proud of? I know it's true because some of you, that's all you talk to me about. And when you go out, you talk about your children. That's the first thing. But the second thing that I think about is the Lord knew that Satan already wanted Job. He says, have you considered my servant Job? The Lord knows the answer to that. You remember when Job, whenever the Lord asked the question about Adam and Eve, the same, almost the same thing that he asked here? He said, where are you, Adam and Eve? That's what he said to Satan, where are you? He said that to Adam and Eve. He said, where are you? Well, you think the Lord didn't know where they were? Oh, I lost track of Adam and Eve. Where did they go? No, the Lord knew exactly where they were. And the Lord knew exactly that Satan had been 
considering Job. He wanted to devour Job. And then you see that the next statement is Satan says, hey, I can't get to him. I want him, but, but you won't let me have him. So the Lord already knew that Satan was trying to get Job. But the Lord mentions him. The Lord puts him up. But the Lord was choosing him. The Lord was choosing Job as an example. On a wall in his bedroom, Charles Spurgeon had a plaque with Isaiah 48.10 on it. It said, I have chosen thee in the furnace of affliction. It is no mean thing to be chosen by God, he wrote. God's choice makes chosen men choice men. We are chosen not in the palace, but in the furnace. In the furnace, beauty is marred. Fashion is destroyed. Strength is melted. Glory is consumed. Yet here, eternal love reveals its secrets and declares its choice. Now we have a privilege that Job didn't have. We have the rest of the book. Amen. We know how it turns out for Job. But Job didn't know. Isn't that the same with you when you're suffering? When you're in the furnace and you're saying, why me, God? Why this, God? Why this much, God? You have the same amount of information that Job had, except you have Job's example. And God chose Job for that mighty and marvelous work. You don't know why God has chosen you. Matthew 6, 6 says, When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And it's a reminder that that God saw Job and He saw what no one else could see about Job and knew that Job would pass pass the test, and that he would cause Job to pass the test. Someone asked C.S. Lewis, why do the righteous suffer? C.S. Lewis said, why not? They are the only ones who can take it. When the rest of the world falls apart, a Christian is held together by the love of God. And God was neither unaware or uninvolved in what happened to Job. God knew exactly what was happening to Job. And God had his hand right on Job. In fact, God had set limits to what the devil could do. At first, in verse 10, have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? What I want you to understand is the universal... Universal suffering of the world could have swept over you long ago and you could not, not be in your place if it were not for the hand of God. If you are where you are today and you're feeling blessed at all, give God the praise for it because He has kept you in His hand. And He's put a hedge around you. But when you go through suffering, I want you to understand this too. 
God has drawn a line for the devil. And he may not, shall not, will not cross that line. If the Lord allows it, he allows it to a limit. Because what does he say? God says, stretch out your hand. Everything that you have, uh, everything he has is in your hands. Everything he has. But what does he say about Job? Don't touch him. Don't touch him. So you see the Lord's commendation. But lastly, I want you to see Satan's contention. Satan absolutely hated Job. And here's the problem. This is what we do. When we suffer, we say, why God? Why are you doing this to me? And what the book of Job teaches us to never do is to never blame God for what the devil does. Never blame God for what the devil does. We live in a world that has fallen. We live in a world where sin is rampant. We live in a world where we are separated from a holy God. And this world is filled with evil. And the devil is the ruler of this world. When suffering happens, we have to give credit where credit is due. In fact, not only did, did Satan come and accuse Job before God and say, Job, he's not a righteous man. In fact, if you just took away the physical blessings from Job, Job will curse you to his face. In his heart, Job is an evil man just like the rest of them. Not only did he accuse Job of being that evil man, the Bible says in the book of Revelation that he's accusing you and me and every one of us day and night before the throne of God. The Bible says... Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan never stops throwing your name in the dirt before a holy God. And all throughout Christian history, he's been saying the same thing to God. Just put them in my hand. Just give them to me. Let me have them. At the Nicene Council of the 4th century, which is a very important church meeting, of the 318 delegates attending, fewer than 12 had not lost an eye or lost a hand or did not limp on a lame leg caused by torture for their Christian faith. 306 of them. Most of the Psalms that were written in your Old Testament were born in difficulty. Most of the epistles were written from prison. Most of the greatest thoughts of the greatest thinkers of all time had to pass through the fire. Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress from Jail. Florence Nightingale was too ill to be moved from her bed. She reorganized the hospitals of England from her bed. Semi-paralyzed and under the constant menace of apoplexy, Louis Pasteur was tireless in his attack on disease. American historian Francis Parkman suffered so acutely that he could not work for more than five minutes at a time. 
five minutes. I mean, his job was to write American history, but he could only write five minutes at a time. His eyesight was so wretched that he could only scrawl just a few gigantic words on a manuscript. And yet he accomplished writing 20 volumes of American history. Tim Hansel writes and says, Sometimes it seems that when God is about to make preeminent use of man, He puts him through the fire. He allows him to go through suffering. Now what you understand is God did not perpetrate evil on Job. Write that down. Don't ever let that leave your heart. God never did evil to Job. Throughout all of the book. People do evil. Fallen angels do evil. Satan does evil. But God never does evil. But he allows it. And there's going to be a day. We look back. Upon what's happening to us. Right now. And we're going to look, look back on it with the perspective that Paul had whenever he wrote in 2 Corinthians. He said, for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Light and momentary, he says. For the Christian... Suffering is coming to an end. You hear that? For the Christian, suffering is coming to an end. But for the unbeliever, folks, listen to me. Suffering has just begun. So we're left with question and it's really that this this question why does why do bad things happen to good people it really we need to get rid of that question because that's really not the pervading question of the book the true pervading of the pervading question of the book is this what will God's people do when bad things happen that, that's the question that you need to consider. That's the question that needs to be uh, hitting your, your heart really today as we study the book. Is what will I do whenever I suffer? What will be on my lips when I suffer? What will I say? What will I do? Will I be like Job? Will I say the Lord is given? The Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Maybe you're here today and you've suffered unimaginable loss 
a tragedy and you're just just now being able to come up for air let me tell you if you've trusted in Christ Jesus and you've come through on the other side and you're you're standing where Job is standing now. You can look back and say the Lord was with me all the way. Praise Him for that. If right now you're in the midst of suffering and you know that the only hope that you have is in a holy God, but you're doubting Him and you're doubting His character right now, let me tell you, hold on because your suffering is coming to an end. There is going to be a day where He will wipe away every tear from every eye and there will be no more suffering, no more pain, and you will live in a place eternally with Him, the God of all comfort and peace. And can I tell you, if you're sitting pretty right now and you feel like God's put a hedge around you, praise Him for that, but be sober-minded and be watchful for your enemy. Prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And he's got your name on his list and he wants you. Prepare your heart now and say, Lord, thank you for all that you've done for me. And Lord, I'll praise you in the fire and in the storm. And if you're the one today and you know the ups and the downs of life, but you've never re reached out your hand and placed it into the hands that were pierced for you, I want to tell you, because of the sin that's in this world, God has condemned this world. You will perish along with it. And your suffering has only begun. Unless. Unless you look to Jesus. The one who suffered and bled and died for you. Who took your place. So that you can be forgiven of your sin. And you can be declared righteous before a holy God. Not perfect but forgiven. And you can do that today. And eternity, your eternity will change today. Just say this in your heart. Say, dear Jesus, I admit to you that I am a sinner. I've done things that I know are wrong and I've failed to do the things that I know are right. And I deserve the penalty for my sin and I deserve to be separated from you. And have eternal suffering. But Jesus. I believe that. You died in my place. That you took my sin upon yourself. And you suffered for me. I believe that on the third day. You were raised again. To prove that you were God. And so now I ask you. To be my savior and my lord. Come into my heart. Make me a new person. Forgive me of my sin. 
put my name down in heaven. And I love you and praise you for the rest of my life. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer and you meant that prayer with all your heart, something very special has happened. The Lord Jesus has forgiven all of your sin, past, present, and future. And he's written your name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. If that's happened to you, this is time now. This is your invitation for you to come and share what Jesus did for you. So I want you to stand with me. And I want you to be bold about what you've just done in your heart with the Lord. Don't hold it in. It's meant to be shared. This is your invitation. If you're looking to join Myrtle Grove Baptist Church in full faith and fellowship and serve the Lord here, this is your opportunity to come during this invitation and join your heart with ours and join your hands to the work here at Myrtle Grove. And we welcome you here. And we thank God for you. If you simply need prayer, our altar counselors will come and pray for you. If you need encouragement, reach out to a brother or sister during this time and ask them to pray for you. Let's, uh, let's spend this time wisely.